You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 20 today. There are Bibles under the chairs if you need one. Um, I would give you a page number, but I think it's different in each of the Bibles. We've got several different floating out there. There's also those scripture journals in the back, which is just the Gospel of Mark with some pages to take notes in. So if that's helpful to you, those are in the back. You can grab, grab one of those at any time. All right, so what is five feet long up to 400 pounds, and is one of the most destructive invasive species in the United States? Eli. And not Eli. He's not quite 400 pounds. <laughs> Wild hogs is the correct answer. Did you know that? Wild hogs? Maybe down in the south, you guys, I don't know if that, I know in Texas they're running wild. But I saw this in a USA Today article from Tuesday, uh, on Tuesday was when I read it. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, feral hogs cause up to $2.5 billion in damages each year. And since their introduction in the U.S. in the 1500s, feral swine population has increased to more than 300 quarter, or three quarters, not 300 quarters, that doesn't make sense, three quarters of the country. According to the Department of Agriculture, their population has grown to more than 9 million. States like California, Hawaii, interestingly, and Michigan report very large feral hog populations. So wild hogs are destroying uh, <laughs> lots of stuff across the country. Uh, today's story does uh, feature hogs quite a bit, features pigs, uh, but not the destruction that comes from hogs, but the destruction of hogs. And so uh, anyway, just came across that story this week, thought I would share that with you and just make you aware that if you see any feral hogs in your yard, that's not good. We can we need to take care of that. But we do have pigs and the destruction of pigs uh, playing a prominent role in our story today. The context of this book is that um, this, the, we're, we're looking at the book of Mark, which is a biography of Jesus written by Mark, uh, probably the eyewitness account of P the apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and the lead apostle. And uh, as he's writing down these, um, writing down these stories from Peter, we're in Ma Mark chapter 5. And the context is, is that Jesus has led his disciples across the Sea of Galilee after a long day of teaching. They got caught in a huge storm, and Jesus calmed the storm with a word. And the disciples were terrified by that reality, both the storm and then even more terrified that someone would have the ability to calm the storm. And so they're asking the question, who then is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? So now we're at the next morning in chapter 5. We're at the next morning. They land on the sea. Uh, they land on the shore. And here's what we're going to see in these, uh, these 20 verses. Okay, I think I have an outline here. This will be, we're going to break our text up into four parts today. Uh, first is in verses 1 through 5, the unclean dehumanization of evil. Say that three times fast. The unclean dehumanization of evil. So we're going to see that there's these demons that are inha inhabiting this man, and they have dehumanized him. That's what evil does. If you want to know if something's evil, is it robbing the dignity of people? Is it warping humanity? Then you can say that that's an evil thing. Verses 6 through 13, we'll see the undeniable power of Jesus as he casts out these demons. And then in verses 14 through 17, we see the unnerved reaction of the community as the buzz from what he does, word spreads, and they actually want Jesus to leave them. And then we get the unrestrained joy of the saved. The one who was delivered has this unrestrained joy and he 
bears testimony to what Jesus has done for him, okay? So that's a summary of the story. Let's actually start in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to look at the, the unclean dehumanization of evil. This is what evil does when, it, uh, when it's concentrated in this man. So here we go, verse 1. They, meaning Jesus and his disciples, came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, there's lots of different manuscripts that use different words, Gerasenes, uh, some of the other ones, you don't necessarily need to know them. So there's been some debate on exactly where this location is. I think it's most likely Kersey. That's what a lot of the early church fathers believed. And this is a little village on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's Gentile country. That's the main point here is that this is Gentile country. They are outside the borders of Israel. And so this Jewish Messiah, this Son of God, is moving outside of the boundaries of Israel. Uh, this is very unusual. This is weird. And so he takes them to, this, to the area of the Gerasenes, um, and it's Gentile country. Jesus is intentionally going out of bounds, crossing borders. He's going to the Gentiles for some purpose. His disciples don't know what that is yet. We don't even know what that is yet. So verse 2, when, they, when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So this man comes running to him. He has an unclean spirit, that's all we know, and he comes and meets Jesus. Matthew chapter 8 uh, records this account and seems to indicate that there's maybe two guys that are involved in this story. So that's kind of interesting. Mark just focus on, focuses on this one guy. And the Luke account of this story, the other gospel, Luke records that he's wearing no clothes. All right, so this guy's already standing out. Um, and, uh, and so he's filled with this unclean spirit. Unclean is a Jewish term for things unfit for worship, un things that are are unclean, they're polluted, they're defiled. And so what it's communicating is that he is filled with a demonic spirit, un unclean, undefiled, um, rebellious. And, and, you know, the Jewish people had all kinds of laws that God had given them to set them apart as a people. There was unclean foods, there was unclean practices, there was unclean uh, different things because they were to be set apart, suitable for the worship of God, suitable for the reference um, uh, and so we're going to see a lot of uncleanness. That's going to be a term that's used quite a bit. They're in Gentile country, um, which is an unclean area. Um, and this man is filled with unclean spirits. He's filled with, uh, at this point, we don't know how many. We just, it just says one unclean spirit. We're going to find out more here in just a minute. So this man is definitely not the kind of man that a Jewish rabbi would want to spend any time with. He's filled with an unclean spirit. He's a Gentile. He's in Gentile land, polluted, defiled. And here, we get this description in verses 3 through 5. We get this description of this man. And this is unique because Mark doesn't spend a lot of time explaining things. Mark, Mark moves. The scene changes fast. He tells stories fast. He doesn't give a lot of description. So the fact that he takes several verses, almost as much space here to talk about this man as he does John the Baptist. In fact, I think he says more here about this man than he does John the Baptist. As important as John the Baptist is uh, to the ministry of Jesus... This man, describing what this man is like, is really important to this story to just show what kind of power Jesus has and just how, how deep, dark, um, the deep, dark evil that this man has experienced and is, is experiencing in him. So just look at this. Just marvel at this. Verse 3, he lived among the tombs. So the man like lives in a, uh, outside of Kersey. There's this mountain and there's these caves. And in those caves, those, there's graves. And so this man spends his time among dead bodies. He sleeps among the graves. He sleeps in these caves where they bury dead bodies. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
For he had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. This man is scary. This naked man lives among the tombs. He's screaming in the middle of the night. He cuts himself with stones. He lives among dead bodies. This is remarkably detailed, and it's almost like he's a supervillain. Like he's almost like Mark is going out of his way to just describe in detail just how unruly, how full of evil this man is. And just look at the repetition of terms. I think I've got it in kind of a chiastic structure here. This is really interesting how Mark structures this. Do I have that? If you want to go to one of my slides, I just want to kind of you to see this visually. Uh, I just want you to notice that as he describes this, verse 3 and 5 kind of match up, and then he kind of describes in these repeated terms. And when you see repetition in the scriptures, it's for emphasis. You know, it's like underlining, it's bolding it, it's, it's, uh, it's putting ex- exclamation marks. So, so just look at this repetition that Mark does. We have a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. No one could bind him. He's bound with shackles. He's bound with chains, but he can wrench the chains. He can break the shackles. No one has the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs, on the mountains, always crying and cutting. Mark is using kind of, he's using this structure here and repetition to just show just how unruly. He's like got like superhuman strength. They put chains on him. He can break them. They put shackles on his feet. He crushes them to bits. He's just completely out of control and completely overcome with evil. And it's an evil that humanity just cannot find any way to restrain. And he is so miserable. He's crying out. And he is, it's almost like he's trying to get the demons out of him. Like he's cutting himself to try to liberate himself, to try to free himself, to try to end his life. Because he's so full of evil and deep. And he's just miserable. He's miserable. He's scary. He's unclean. It's just over the top the way Mark describes it here. So basically what we have here is we set this scene in the first five verses is that Jesus, who claims to be the Son of God, who's giving evidence of being the Israel's Messiah, he's going into hostile country. He's going to an unclean place that no holy man should go to. Visiting an unclean spirit in an unclean man, in an unclean home among the tombs, in an unclean country. He, the, according to Jewish law, Jesus should come nowhere near this man. And in fact, this man is so dangerous, this man is so full of evil, this man is so miserable that the Messiah should actually probably just put him out of his misery. This is a man that should just go ahead and just be eliminated. He's so destructive, he's so full of evil, he's so unclean, and Jesus, Israel's Messiah, should come and he should rid the world of this kind of evil. That's what the Messiah, in their minds, should do. This is perhaps the most demonically tormented man since Job. And in fact, in some ways, because you remember the story of Job, that God gives Satan permission to torment Job. But the thing with Job is that Job had faith in God and Job was tormented from the outside in. This man is being tormented from the inside out. We don't have anyone in scripture that seems to have this level of spiritual torment indwelling him, overwhelming him, oppressing him. And we just see that it's dehumanizing him, right? It's dehumanized, this man. That's what evil does. That's what the realm of Satan does. That's what being far from God does, is it dehumanizes. If you want to know if something's evil, is it dehumanizing? Is it dehumanizing? Is it removing the dignity of a person? This man is is completely ravaged 
by evil. And so then we get to verses 6 through 13. So this is the man that runs up to Jesus. This is scary. This is intimidating. And he runs up to Jesus, and then verses 6 through 13, look at his response. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out in a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So Jesus is calling the spirit to come out, and the the spirit's resisting a little bit. And he cries out. So the man comes to Jesus, and what I was wondering is, is this like a heavyweight showdown? They're like, this is a demon coming to confront Jesus because Jesus is coming into enemy territory. So is this like a... Is this like a demonic person trying to protect his realm? Like, hey, Jesus, you're coming into our territory and it's trying to confront him? Or is there in some sense a vestige in this man? Is there still a little bit of sanity in him that when he sees Jesus, he goes, I could go and be delivered to him? And so I don't know. Is this, what is, what is this? Maybe it's both. Maybe it's both a confrontation with Jesus. And also maybe there's some little bit in this human, in this man to go, I need, I need your help. I need to bring my problem to Jesus. Could be a little bit of both. Either way, it's fascinating that the man and the demon recognize Jesus. They call him by name, Jesus. And then what title does he give? Son of the Most High God. So these demons who are enemies of the Most High God call out, Jesus, fully human, the human person that lived in history, Son of the Most High God, divine. Both human, the human person, and his divine identity at the same time. And then what's fascinating is that he, he, uh, he says, I adjure you by God. Even, even the demons have to acknowledge that God is overall. And, and he, he says, do not torment, torment me. He says, do not torment me. I love what Luther says. Even the devil is God's devil. So it's fascinating that the demons ask Jesus to swear by God. You need to, uh, they're appealing almost to a higher authority. This is not the time for judgment yet, Jesus. We're going to come back to that in just a second because some of the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, give us a little clarity, a little bit about what's going on and why these guys, these, these, this man, these demons say these things. The battle between good and evil is not an even fight. These people see Jesus. The, this man, full of these demons, comes before Jesus and bows down and begs. That just tells us that Jesus is overall. That even his enemies have to come and they acknowledge him. As God. Remember the very first verse of the book? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's Mark's thesis. This is another evidence. This is more confirmation of Mark's thesis. That even his enemies, even this legion of unclean demons, even this this man possessed by evil acknowledges Jesus' divinity. To this point, no human... has fully acknowledged that yet. This is the closest we've gotten. But demons repeatedly recognize Jesus and call him out for who he is. Verse 9, Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And now, for the first time, we get this sense that there's actually more than one demon in this man. It's almost like Jesus is saying, okay, you let everyone know who I am. Now it's time for you to tell everyone who you are. This question demonstrates Jesus' authority because they've already acknowledged his authority. You're the son of the most high God. You've come to torment us. You have authority over us. We've been doing the wrong thing. We deserve judgment. They're admitting all of that. And Jesus goes, okay, well, why don't you just reveal to everybody what's really going on here? Let's pull the curtain back 
And this is not just one like crazy man who's doing inappropriate things. This is a man who's filled not just with one demon. And the guy goes, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, Legion is the largest Roman military unit, somewhere between four and 6,000 soldiers. So I think we have a picture here just to kind of give a sense of the picture. When he's saying the word Legion, this is the spiritual reality that Jesus is confronting. It seems like that's what it's pulling on, is this idea of the Roman legion, the largest of the military unit. This is a spiritual military unit. This is not just Jesus versus one man. This is a cosmic battle here. This is a spiritual battle. It's Jesus versus legion. The whole demonic army bows and begs at the sight of Jesus. He's just coming across the boat. He's got no weapons. He's got nothing but just himself. They're probably a little wet from the storm. They've maybe pulled an all-nighter. Here they are on the shore, and these demons must come and bow before him. This demonic legion of angels, of, of demonic angels, that no one can control. They can't put chains on them. They can't put shackles on them. And they bow before Jesus just immediately, immediate surrender to Jesus. The Messiah is expected to come to Israel, defeat the military and political legions of Rome. That's what people are expecting is that he would come and defeat, and defeat political powers. But Jesus never does that. Neither, Jesus never picks up the sword and fights politically. But he does go out of his way through a storm to go deliver someone spiritually. He goes out of his way for one man, to deliver this one man. Because at the end of this story, he's going to leave. He's going to deliver this one man from this legion of angels. He's going to defeat this legion of demons, and then he's going to leave. He goes out of his way. The real battle isn't land and political power. But image bearers, Jesus came to save image bearers and to deliver them from spiritual powers. It's almost like what Jesus said in John 18, 36 is true, which is that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So we get this, we get this interesting showdown. Jesus is invading beyond the boundaries of, his, of, of, of Israel. He's going into Gentile lands and he's going to deliver Gentiles. He's going to defeat these demons and this declaration of war between legion and jesus is already over they immediately surrender at the presence of jesus the demons through this man seem to be guarding the stronghold and we see jesus's authority jesus doesn't just command storms and he doesn't just command individual demons jesus commands demonic armies you would think that maybe Jesus would have to do some stretches because this is going to be a battle that's going to take something out of him. But it's not the case. He's going up against this man that no one can control, who's an unprecedented evil, and he just, with a word, defeats him. Jesus is not just the king in Israel. Jesus is the king outside of Israel. Jesus' power is not loosened at all by being across the sea. He is king everywhere. And he is king over everything. And then in verse 10, now this is what's interesting. Watch as we read this, the switch between singular and plural. Okay? Verse 10, then he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So the man it seems to be begging Jesus not to send the demons out of the country. So is this man kind of like, has he kind of, become at peace with these demons? Is that what's going on? Is he sort of speaking on their behalf? We're really not told, but you get this sort of like, there's a, this tension between the man, the image bearer, whom Jesus is going to redeem, and these demons. And they're so sort of intermixed that it's hard to tell who is saying what. 
is this man at home with these demons and he doesn't want them to leave? Is this the demons saying, hey, don't send us into eternal judgment quite yet? Look at verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding outside there on the hillside. And they begged him, so now we're in the plural, they, these legion of demons, begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. And so Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Isn't that fascinating? We've got this back and forth, that there's this man, but then there's this legion of demons, and it's hard to tell where one ends and where the other begins. This is so... Um, intertwined with evil here. Verse 10, he begged not to send them. Verse 12, they begged him, saying, let us go. So I don't know exactly what this looked like, if he had different voices or what, but there's this, this tension, this fighting back and forth here. What's fascinating is that Jesus can see both the man and the demons, and he's going to be able to separate the two. He's going to know what's redeemable in this man and what needs to go. And that's true, I think, in our lives too, is that Jesus is able to see, even though we've gotten ourselves intertwined with sin and with evil, it's hard to tell what's real and what's the real us and what's not the real us. Jesus has that ability with a word to see what in us needs to be removed and what of us is redeemable and is part of God's image in us. Why the pigs? Why these poor guys that are just taking care of their pigs? This is their livelihood. And they're just wandering along. They're just seeing this confrontation between the weird naked guy that screams all the time that we can't do anything about. He's been around here forever. They've just sort of made peace with that. And this little entourage, these group of fishermen, all of a sudden their pigs go crazy and just go barreling off the cliff into the sea. Why the pigs? According to Leviticus 11.7, pigs are an unclean animal. They're not the kind of thing that you would see in Israel. And so it's like these unclean spirits, it's more suitable for them to be in an unclean animal than it would be to be in one of God's image bearers. So it's meant to picture that this is a more suitable dwelling. And in fact, it's their idea to go to these unclean pigs because they know that Jesus is going to drive him out. They, they just know that. And so they're sort of negotiating. Jesus agrees to these terms and they go in these unclean animals, a more suitable dwelling for unclean spirits. And the 2,000 seems to indicate maybe just how many demons there were. This seems to be an, an, an indication that there was a lot of demons in this one man. Whether there was exactly 2,000, I don't know, but I think that's the illustration. And I think Jesus chooses to liberate the man in this way. He asks him the questions he does to demonstrate his power, to reveal to everybody that he is Lord over not just individual demons, but the whole, a whole army, a whole legion of demons. This seems to illustrate how comprehensive Jesus' power is over evil. And where do the pigs go where do they go once they die? What, you know, why, why is that? Don't send us out of the country, but as soon as they get into the pigs, they go careening off and they're dead. Then what happens? Um, this story in Matthew chapter 8, these demons ask this question. So in, Mar in Matthew's account of this, I think this gives us a little insight. Matthew's account in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 29, they say to him, have you come to torment us before the time? Have you come to torment us before the time? So the demons know that ultimately they're going to be held accountable and judged and condemned by Jesus. They know that there's a judgment day set and that they will lose and it will be Jesus who executes that just judgment. So they seem somewhat surprised that Jesus would cross the lake to come to them and they go, wait a minute, we still have a little bit of time. It's not judgment day, Jesus. We ask you, we ask you to swear by God the Father to check the calendar, Jesus, you're early for judgment. 
You can't cast us into the fiery hell right now. You can't cast us. It's not time for our uh, judgment yet. Luke's account of this story, chapter 8, verse 31, says they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So what they're asking is that, hey, you're not bringing the final judgment now, are you? You're early. (laughs) So they know there's a judgment coming. They know that judgment will be executed by Jesus. They know they are deserving of that judgment. And they are appealing to Jesus, go, hey, why don't you just, like, why don't you just put us over here in the pigs and we'll get out of here? Okay. So Jesus decides not to execute final judgment on them, but just this temporary judgment, and they're they're called to leave this man. They're admitting their guilt. They're acknowledging Jesus as final judge, and Jesus obliges their request to go into these pigs and depart temporarily. The death of the pigs illustrates something about the nature of evil, is that evil always ends in death. Right? Right? I think that's part of what's being illustrated here is it's not like these pigs all of a sudden something good happens. There's an illustration here that demonic evil, all evil, leads to death. John 10.10, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, right? We're getting a living illustration of what the end of evil is. It's to destruction. These pigs are all going to destruction this man was being destroyed this man wanted to destroy himself to be free of this and then jesus says this though in john 10 10 but i came that they may have life and have it abundantly we see a contrast here right the demonic powers are destroying this man dehumanizing him and with just a word jesus restores his humanity makes him whole brings life to this man gives him abundant life, sets him in order, makes him who he was meant to be, who was created to be. We just see that again and again, that Jesus brings life and evil brings death. So we get to verses 14 through 17, the unnerved rejection of the community. Okay, we're still in Gentile land here, right? The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. The people came to see what had happened, and they came to see Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man And one who had been there, who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and their response was, they were what? Afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them, what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So again, the herdsmen are just minding their own business, and then that business is wrecked by Jesus' decision. Today, if you were to have a herd of pigs and you were to just like be out here... (laughs) Uh, grazing them out in the uh, right out here by Rapid Creek, right outside the journey here. Right now, the current price, uh, depending on your pig, is between two hundred and five hundred dollars for per pig. That's the price right now. So if you can just imagine two thousand pigs all of a sudden go crazy um, and run into Rapid Creek and just float away. In today's dollars, that would be between four hundred thousand and one million dollars lost. That's in today's money. I don't know how that translates to first century Israel, but that just gives you a sense of what was lost here. Like this is your family wealth. This is going to cripple you and the economy maybe for generations. So these men go and tell the story of going, hey, something super weird happened. And an immediate intervention is in order. The people gather up and they go, we've got to go see what's going on. We need an immediate intervention. So people drop exactly what they're doing immediately and they go out and they meet Jesus. Jesus hasn't even left the shore yet. And they see the man, and they're afraid. 
It's one thing to see all the floating pig carcasses. It's another thing to see this man that we've just been putting up with forever, that we cannot control, and he's lucid, he's easy to talk to, he's dressed, and that scares them because a power has just entered onto their shores that they can't explain. And so this combination of seeing the man transformed unnerves them, and then seeing what it cost to transform this man scares them, and they're just overwhelmed by the power of Jesus. They're overwhelmed by him. We kind of just wished that this man was dead. We just, we just wanted him dead. We didn't want him in his right mind. Now what do we do with him? This man's reputation, like, what do we do with him? We let him live next to us and our kids? Like, what do, what do we do with this man that's now made right, knowing what we know about him? That's scary. We'd kind of come to terms with the fact that we were living among a demon-possessed man. We'd kind of made terms with that. And now we've lost all this money. This is too much. And so they beg Jesus to leave. Pretty, pretty sobering, really, that they could stare Jesus in the face and go, we do not want this here. Why? I think his power is too unexplainable and it's too expensive. The combination of the transformed man and the destroyed pigs affected them. Jesus had the power not just to overpower this man, which they couldn't do, but to fix him. That's amazing. To transform him. To make him new. That's too much. That breaks their categories. The loss of the fortune, disrupting their economy, disrupting their way of life, that's too much. Too expensive. They were more comfortable living with armies of demons and their security and safety than to have Jesus' power and presence that demands a change, a change in relationships and a change in lifestyle. Jesus cares more about one outcast than anybody's material prosperity. For Jesus, that made sense. The man that everyone just wanted dead and out of their lives, Jesus goes, that's worth at least 400000 to a $400, million. And for everyone to know that, he, what side would we be on if someone from Pennington County Jail was brought into our church? Like what, what would that look like if Jesus was to transform the person maybe we least want to be around, we are most intimidated by, would be most unnerving for us? Would we trade our security and financial well-being maybe for the next several generations to see one street person, one Pennington County inmate, to be saved? This community saw the cost and said, no, we don't want that here. And the reality is at least they're honest about it. They knew immediately that you can't have Jesus and a comfortable life. It's impossible. We might be further from understanding Jesus than these unnerved disciples because we often as American Christians have created a delusional view that we can have the power of Jesus among us and not have it cost us anything and not make us uncomfortable, and that Jesus might bring someone into our fellowship that maybe we would rather not have here. So they get it. They actually, to some extent, kind of get what it's going to cost them, and they're not ready for that right now. And then we get the unrestrained joy of the saved, verses 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, because they asked Jesus to leave, and he obliges. What a scary thing to look Jesus in the eyes and say, I want nothing to do with you, and he goes, okay. And he leaves. And he's going to come back later, but... This is, this is a weighty thing here. Verse 18, and he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. 
And he did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So the man begs. Do you notice that everyone, when they encounter Jesus, begs? Nobody comes with a strut. No one comes bringing their resume. There's no Jesus is my homeboy, fist bump, what can you do for me, right? He is the servant king, but at this point, we are just overwhelmed by his power. Everyone is begging him. They're acting as if he's king and Lord. Surprisingly, Jesus tells this man, no. His 12 were already set. We saw that a couple chapters ago. The 12 apostles are already set. It's not yet time for the Gentiles to be brought in yet. And maybe, honestly, the Jewish people that he is coming to minister to, they may not be ready yet for the Gentiles to come in. They might not be ready for the fact that Jesus came for all nations and he came to bring even demon-possessed Gentiles from unclean lands in yet. We're not quite there yet, and honestly, most churches aren't ready for that either, (laughs) to have the kind of people that Jesus plans to bring into his kingdom brought into their community. But instead, he commissions him. And what's interesting here is there's no messianic secret. To this point, Jesus has told people not to tell people who he is. But he's in Gentile land here, and it seems like to some extent they have a reverence for Israel's Messiah. They have a reverence for Jesus that almost is like we are intimidated by him. And they're almost in a better position to hear about the mercy of the Messiah. Because remember, the Jewish Messiah is not seen as a good thing for Gentiles. It's not seen as a good thing for Gentiles because this means that Israel is going to overthrow its enemies. That's sort of the common understanding of what Jesus' Jewish Messiah might be. So their challenge is the opposite of the Jews, is that Jesus is the Messiah is going to come and he's going to wreck all our enemies. He's going to restore our prosperity and those dirty Gentiles are going to finally be put in their place. But for the Gentiles, if if the Jewish Messiah is real and it comes, then they have a problem. That might be an issue. So they might actually be better positioned to hear about the Messiah in some ways. The man's message of Israel's Messiah bringing mercy to unclean outside Gentiles might be understood. Go and tell them that Israel's Messiah is actually full of mercy, even for outsiders. He's not coming to conquer you. He's coming to redeem you. Perhaps that's the case. That maybe in some ways Israel still needs to have their view of what the Jewish Messiah is going to be like deconstructed. So they're not quite ready to hear all this, but maybe to some extent these Gentiles hearing from this formerly demon-possessed man might be be more ready for the truth. Sometimes a complete outsider comes to understand and treasure the gospel more fully and quickly than an insider who has just always assumed they're fine because they grew up around Christian things. That seems to be somewhat the Jewish problem. We've grown up Jewish. We're already fine with God. So we just need a Messiah to come and make us prosperous. Well, you need to have a whole lot of that deconstructed, these Jewish folks do. So Jesus is, is, is like, don't, let's not get into the Messiah thing. The Gentiles know that they're on the outside, especially a man full of demons and unclean things. He knows he's not right with God. And so in some sense, he might be the ideal person to be talking about the gospel. I don't know if you've ever met someone like that who's not a Christian, didn't grow up around Christian things, and it clicks. And in some ways, they see Jesus better than maybe those who grew up in a Christian home and are making assumptions, making assumptions about their status with God. They're just sort of assuming things. That might be what's going on here. I'm speculating a little bit. Sometimes you have to get someone lost before you can get them saved. And for a man who has been consumed with as much evil as you can imagine, 
the liberation of the Messiah and the gospel would be sweet. How could you keep this man quiet? So Jesus sends him off. And in a sense, we have the first missionary sent out. Isn't this weird? We have the first missionary sent out by Jesus. Go, no, you don't come with me. Actually, you go to your friends and you tell them about Jesus. We have the first missionary sent out by Jesus, sent out to Gentiles. The first apostle to the Gentiles is this man. Who's probably the least qualified to speak for Jesus? Well, the guy that was doing super evil, weird things, right? But Jesus immediately flips him, makes him a preacher of the gospel. And he does so with great joy and the people marvel. So we have so many categories that are broken in this story. We have so many of our expectations flipped upside down. And I think here's some right responses to this message, all right? So let's just, let's just hit four. There's lots. There's lots and lots of things that we could draw from this passage by terms of, in terms of application. But let me, just, let me just lay out four for you here. I think first is this. We need to acknowledge that personal, powerful, evil forces exist. Demons are real. And we can have... We can have a temptation to go in one of two directions. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Screwtape Letters. We can, we can either be overly fixated on them to where we're seeing a demon around every corner. We're blaming every problem on a demon. We're sort of over-spiritualizing. We just don't see Jesus doing that. We never see Jesus go demon hunting. We never see the apostles go demon hunting. We never see them blaming a lot of things on demons. And so even in the scriptures, we just don't see them spending a lot, giving a lot of attention to demons at all. So there can be an over-spiritualization to where we're like fixating and we're worried about one every, around every corner and we think every, every bad thing has a demon behind it. If Jesus doesn't do that. That would be a wrong message. But on the other side, which might be more common among us, is just to pretend like they don't exist at all. To not realize that there are demonic forces that are going on and the demons would be very happy to hide. No one knew just how much evil was in this man, how many demons were in there. They were happy. The, the most dangerous enemy, enemy is not the enemy you know about, the enemy you don't know about, right? That's the enemy. And, and how much demonic activity might be happening around us all the time that we're just not even aware of. And so we need to just acknowledge that that's a reality, not fixate on it, not be paralyzed by it, but not be naive and not think that there aren't evil forces behind things. Secondly, we need to behold Jesus as the authoritative king who possesses power over all things. We saw a natural evil that was trying to destroy them in the storm, right? Jesus has power over natural evil, the storm. Here we see that Jesus has power over supernatural evil, this legion of demons that's trying to destroy this man. So we see in these two passages together that Jesus has all power over all things, natural and supernatural. And we see that Jesus has power in all places. He has power over the unpredictable sea and outside the borders of Israel, among the tombs in Gentile land. He doesn't just have powers that are stuck in one place. He's not just the God of Israel. He's the God of everything. He's the Lord over all things. Natural, supernatural, over the sea and the land. We see that Jesus is king over all and has rule and authority and power over all. Third, believe that nobody is beyond Jesus' power and will to save. If there was anyone that Jesus said they're just too far gone, it would be this man. You don't have anyone in Scripture that is more terrorized than this man. If there's anyone that goes, that's too far, that's too much, I can't save them, this would be the guy. And Jesus has no problem at all redeeming and transforming this man on the spot in one morning and transforming him into a preacher. In the moment, just think of the person that you find most repulsive, the person most physically, morally, behaviorally, racially unacceptable to you. 
They are not beyond Jesus' power and will to save. Nobody is beyond Jesus' power and will to save. Some of you need to hear that for yourself. Some of you have maybe gotten yourself stuck into some evil things. You have some regrets. Maybe you're stuck into some addictions right now, and it's dehumanizing you, and you can't seem to break out of it. It seems like that addiction, that sin pattern can break every chain you try to put on it. If we will bow before Jesus, he can, with a word, set us free. And he does not think that we're unredeemable. And maybe you can't tell the difference between yourself and your sin anymore. You can't tell the difference between you and your addiction. You don't know where you end and where that begins. Jesus does. And if we will come to him, he has the power to restore us, to deliver us, to transform us in every way, physically and spiritually. You are not too far gone. No one is too far gone. No one is unredeemable. And we need to drill that into our heads over and over again. No matter who you see on TV, on the news, on the streets, no matter what they've done, they are made in God's image and God can redeem that image. He can deliver them. And he might. He might just do it. And you might be commissioned like this person to represent Jesus' kingdom far sooner than you ever dreamed. Do you notice that every demonstration of Jesus' kingly power is always for the benefit of image bearers? Jesus never does just a miracle just to show off. It's always in service of redeeming his image. It's always delivering someone. It's always restoring something. Jesus is the servant king. He's not just coming to just demonstrate his power so that we'll all be wowed by him, but that by worshiping him, we might be made whole. He's the servant king. He always exercises his power. Just notice that throughout this whole book. Every miracle is in service of restoring God's image in people. It is for the sake of people. He's the servant king. And here we see this, that he doesn't just line up some demons and then knock them down. He's going to deliver a man in the, prom, in, the, in the process and set him free and make him new. He's cosmically good and powerful, and he can restore anyone. Number four, I think we would, should follow the man's example. Go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. That's the mission of every Christian to go and tell, to bear witness to what Jesus has done for us. And every testimony is valuable. Every testimony is valuable. The story that God has written for you, even the dark and hard and embarrassing and shameful parts, God wants that story to be part of his redemption story. He saved you because he wants your story to be a testimony of his grace. So don't be ashamed of your story and tell it. Go tell people how awful you were and how you were delivered from all of it by Jesus. That's what this man is supposed to do, and he's happy to do it. And God is pleased to be identified with this man. Tell them that you and I, we're on the same team. I am not ashamed of you, demoniac. This man who was unclean and rejected by everybody, Jesus, is not ashamed to be united with him. Go and tell them how much I love you, how much I delivered you from. And that's true for you and me. That's our greatest testimony. In this sense, we see this man enjoying God and his redeeming grace. We see him displaying a changed life by wearing clothes <laughs> and being in his right mind. And we see him sharing what happened. That's what, we're, that's what we're about here. That's what every Christian is about. About enjoying the God who has saved us from our sins, from all evil. Display. A difference. There's something different in me because I've met Jesus. I'm now free to live a changed life. And I share what he has done for me. 
with others so that they might too be delivered by Jesus and might marvel, that God may get the glory and that others might be amazed and might have the image of God redeemed in them as well. Isn't that awesome? So Jesus is about to cross back to the other lake, other side of the lake and we'll pick up the story next week. But let's take a moment just right now and maybe there's one of these four things that you just need to, before God, take hold of today. That's my application. That's my takeaway. That's the thing I need to work on today. Let's just take a moment in silence to just do business with God, to receive his grace, to think about who we need to tell, tell the gospel to, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is prompting in your hearts. Why don't you respond to him right now? Let's take just a moment to do that. Oh God, we come before you and we see this, this eyewitness account of Jesus and it blows our minds as we think about his power. God, I pray that you would help us to respond rightly to Jesus in this moment, that we would recognize him as the king, that we would, would realize uh, the evil that is around us, and God, that we would, we would come and bow before Jesus and have ourselves set free from the evil that is within us, from the evil that has been harassing us. God, set us free, make us new, put us in our right minds. God, I pray like these who, uh, who wanted Jesus to go away, they just weren't ready for this. I pray, God, that we would be honest about where we're at with you and we'd be willing to put it all on the table, even if it costs us everything to be a part of your mission and your kingdom, even if it costs us financial security, even if it costs us relationships, even if it puts us among people that we are uncomfortable with, Lord, I pray that we would just have a blank contract, that we just lay our lives in front of you and go, whatever you need to do, even from a worldly perspective, if it wrecks me, I want to be part of your kingdom and I want your presence and power among us. God, may we not be like these who wanted Jesus to leave because just did not want the cost and the disruption of having Jesus' power among us. God, help us to come to terms with that and be okay with that. May we see you set people free in miraculous ways in our church and in our community. And may we not fight that. May we welcome that. May we respond rightly to it. And may we be the kind of people that are quick to tell people about what you have done to set us free. So God, we pray that that would happen today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.